Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks, Kelsey. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being such a crowd Yay. for Dory's fantastic new novel. Um, I loved it so much. Thanks. Jade's on the cover, you know. And that's 50% of the reason I loved it so much. Actually, no, I loved it before I made it onto the cover. That's but fair. I'm very happy to be in a cloud. Yay. It's so cute. <laughs> um, but yeah, I zoomed through it. And as someone who has worked at uh, a couple of different startups, it just felt so pitch perfect to me. Like, I feel like you totally captured the hubris and the excitement that really is startup culture. So, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, just, just so we're all on the same page with the book. Hi. Um, Hi. There, it's, there are a few different characters that kind of their lives intersect in really significant ways. Do you want yes. to just give us a little bit of an idea of uh, what happens? Sure. So um, one of the characters is named Mac McAllister. He's 28 years old. He's the founder of a mindfulness app called Takeoff. And as our story begins, he is a little stressed out because if he doesn't raise another round of funding, his company is going to go under. And it's and not just like any round of funding. It's a lot. It's a lot cash. of money. And if he does get this round of funding, his company will be worth $600 million and he will be really loaded. <laughs> um, and in the meantime, also, he's been hooking up with one of his employees. I'll leave that. I'll leave that. <laughs> you can just sort of imagine more. Um, then... It's told from three different perspectives. Another perspective is um, a 24-year-old journalist named Katya Pasternak. She works for a tech blog called Tech Scene, and she is like very ambitious, um, very eager to kind of prove herself. And at the beginning of the book, she learns from her boss that the blog, the site, is going to start evaluating their writers using a, a new metric. It's not going to just be traffic anymore. It's going to be engagement and impact and for anyone who has worked at a digital news organization well, <laughs> sure you feel me on that um, so she's a little freaked out at the beginning of the story at the beginning of the book because she really feels like she knew how to do this one thing but she doesn't know how to do the new thing and she needs to find a big story to really prove herself and keep her job and then the third character um, is a 36-year-old woman named Sabrina who works for Mac and is married to Katya's boss. Um, Sabrina's boss is 26. Sabrina is like a real fish out of water. Um, she has two kids. She is older than almost everyone else in the office. Um, she was a stay-at-home mom for five years, and she kind of just went back to work. And there's a lot of stuff she's dealing with, both at home and at work. And so um, I won't give away too much of the plot, but 
something happens. <laughs> um, a lot of things happen. And, um, and everyone's lives kind of get very messily intertwined. Yes. Yeah. And part of the joy of the book, you know, when I was reading it, I feel like I really toggled between wanting to speed through and kind of find out what happens, what happens, what happens, and then wanting to slow down and be like, oh my God, I can't believe she noticed like this about the kind of green juices that tech guys drink, tech guys drink versus <laughs> the kind of green juices that like yoga girls drink, you know, mm. like it's, you just have yeah. so many... Uh, Amazing distinction. It is. It is. Um, But one of my favorite things was the app that Mac Mm -hmm. invents because I've been so fascinated by how kind of the tech world ethos has been migrating closer and closer to the kind of self-help new age world ethos yeah and so so tell us a little bit about that app and what it does so this app um you give it permission to basically read everything on your phone so it can read which your, is every app on your phone right so, <laughs> yeah. by the way um it can read your texts it can read your emails it can read your facebook status updates it can read your tweets it can read your dms it can read basically anything and Because it has all this information, it's able to figure out if you are feeling sad. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And then it sends you a little uh, thing to cheer you up, like maybe an animated GIF or a joke or a suggestion to, like, take a walk to clear your head. Um, And so Mac um, had launched this and... Initially, that's what the app did, but now he wants to make it so that the app can anticipate how you're going to feel before you even know that you're going to be feeling it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It probably also, like, exists or is currently being developed. Well, that kind of kept happening. Um, Really? Yeah. Like, as I was working on the book, I would make up these apps, and Mm then... Uber for strollers, for example? Yeah. Well, that does not exist yet. If anyone wants that, it's gonna. I mean, it fails in the book, so (laughs) just so you know. Um, But no, like... Like the some of the apps that I would make up, like um, would I would I would then see things that were not exactly the same, but yeah. were similar enough that you could see a world in which, like down the road, they might mm-hmm. get there, and that was very disconcerting. <laughs> okay, which very neatly leads me to my next question, which is someone so. I couldn't find this tweet again when I went back to look at to look for it. But on Twitter today, someone said that, uh, and maybe they were just quoting some well-known quote that I didn't know about. But that the end of civilization is when culture essentially just satirizes itself. <laughs> and you, for example. You know, sexual assault and domestic violence is pre-existing conditions. Very much culture satirizing itself in a horrible way. Um, But, you know, in the tech world, I feel like that has been happening for so long already, Mm. right? Like, we have... There are all these phrases that... The people that, you know, VCs and entrepreneurs kind of simultaneously make fun of and Mm -hmm. then use in a pitch, like, in the next second. Right. Move fast and break things. I, I'm sure you guys all have heard people say this is going to change the world. Everything has to change the world. Yeah. Um, everything's a disruptor. 
don't be evil, like all of that stuff, right? Right. I mean, we kind of saw that on Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. when it was supposed to be, I mean, when it started, it seemed to be mocking Silicon Valley, and I think still is, but now it's considered like a badge of honor to have a cameo on Silicon Valley if you work in Silicon Valley. Yes. (laughs) So it's like... I don't know. It's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what do you, th- but what do you think is behind that? Like, do you think it's about bad guys who want to convince themselves that they're the good guys or is it just so muddled? I mean, I think unless you're like a true psychopath, like you don't really ever, you don't want to be a bad guy. Like most, I, I think most bad guys mm-hmm. genuinely think that they are good guys or girls, women. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, I think a lot of bad people are not self-aware enough to know that what like that they're really shitty people. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think that like you know that kind of app that essentially tries to change and affect your mood like is that you know in a way that's a dictatorship? <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, it's. It's, it's certainly like it's, it's a kind of a psychological one. dictatorship. Yeah. Um, but you know that was kind of what I wanted to explore mm-hmm. with Mac. Like, it's not you know his intentions are pretty good. Okay. Like they're okay. You know, yeah. it's not like he invented something that is like he didn't invent like a fracking app. You know, <laughs> like he wants people to like be happier. Right. Which has its own problems, mm-hmm. like when you think happiness is like the ultimate goal right. of well, and also wasn't that the goal of the fifties? Yeah. Or we all um, but yeah, I mean, he just kind of blindly goes on and doesn't care that the app is like a huge invasion of privacy. But there is a scene in the book where he. Mm-hmm. Um, gets a notification from his own app and uh-huh. is like annoyed by it. So, yeah, so maybe his app doesn't really work as well as he thinks it does. Well, you know, of all the things that were so great about this book, one of my favorites was, you know, kind of how pitch perfect the details were. I, I feel like there are some books that you read and you're like, this author never saw the L.A. punk scene in the 90s. Like, they just just weren't there. Right. Whereas with with Startup, I feel like, yeah, Dory is kind of reporting from the (laughs) trenches here. Yeah. um, I... I don't know if this was mentioned in my bio, but I, uh, I have worked at BuzzFeed for five and a half years. So, right. you know, I have kind of seen a lot um, in terms of like working in a startup that got really mm-hmm. big and, mm-hmm. um, you know, working with people who are younger than I am. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I kind of experienced firsthand that didn't like, it's not like this is my experience at all, right. but it, there are certainly things that I took from uh-huh. both my own personal experience and um, reporting that I did. Yeah. on startups and tech in particularly when I lived in New York. Would you want to why don't you read a little bit from the okay. from the opening? All right. Which <laughs> takes place in New York. Okay. Uh-huh. <clears throat> okay, so this is uh, this is from the prologue. 
They came from all over the city in the pre-dawn hours, a merry band of highly optimized minstrels in purple leggings and shiny headbands and brightly colored sneakers, walking the 15 minutes from the L train or directing an Uber to the former spice factory in the no man's land between Williamsburg and Greenpoint. The neighborhood's normal early morning crowd, the dog walkers, the construction workers, the marathon trainers, mostly looked upon them with amused curiosity. Nothing fazed them anymore. Once they got into the club, they either headed straight for the dance floor or descended on the bar, which this morning was not selling alcohol, but rather providing free sustenance in the form of granola bars and coconut water and green juice, all sponsored by an on-demand laundry app, which they drank greedily before, or in some cases while, slithering onto the dance floor. This was the October edition of Morning Rave, a monthly gathering devoted to the idea that the best way to start the day was with the excited energy of a clean living dance party. It was a movement that in a previous generation might have been derided as corny or Mormon, but this was a different New York. The cynical echo of Generation X had finally been quieted, and along with it, most of the dive bars, rent-stabilized apartments, bands, underground clubs, clothing boutiques, and fashion magazines that used to define the city. In its place had arisen a promised land of Dwayne Reeds and Chase ATMs on every corner, luxury doorman buildings, Pilates studios and spin classes, $18 rosemary-infused cocktails, and $7 cups of single-origin coffee, all of which were there to cater to a new generation of 20-somethings, the data scientists and brand strategists and software engineers and social media managers, product leads and marketing associates, IT coordinators, ready just to disrupt the world with apps. And today, like every day, they would work until it was dark again, and then they would go to dinner parties or secret cocktail bars or rooftop events, and most of them would end the night watching Netflix on their laptops in bed, perhaps in one of the new high-rises summoned directly from a marketing brochure, doorman, swimming pool, rooftop cabanas, yoga room, unparalleled views, and the lifestyle you deserve. Few of them lived alone, but most of them rarely crossed paths with their roommates. Everyone was just so busy. Wherever they resided, Williamsburg or Bushwick or the Lower East Side or Bed-Stuy or Crown Heights, they embraced their neighborhood's ready availability of acai bowls and yoga studios. They were all in agreement that adulthood could and should be fun. It was truly a new Gilded Age. Truly a new Gilded Age. (laughs) So, So which version of New York do you identify with more? Um... I mean, I think the older one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's weird, right? Like, I... Mm -hmm. New York is always changing. Like, there has never been a time where New York has not been changing. So Mm -hmm. this idea that there is some, like, romantic New York that exists is kind of a false one. Right. Um, But I think... People my age and older, people around my age and older kind of like Mm -hmm. to think that there was. Um, And I'm certainly guilty of that. Yeah. But, you know, it is weird. Like, so I moved to L.A., uh, almost four and a half years ago, and especially yeah. the first couple years I was here, I was going back to New York a lot for work. Like uh-huh. probably every six weeks, I would go back, and even six weeks at a time, like I was noticing things changing. Like that is very fast. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It, you know, stores closing, restaurants mm. closing, um, buildings being knocked down, new buildings being put up, and then when I was just I was there last week for book stuff, and like. There's a lot of empty retail now. It's really weird and kind of creepy. Um, 
And yeah, I don't know. Do you know. think it's making way for a, a new, new New York? Maybe. I mean, it seems like no one can afford to like have a store there anymore yeah. or a restaurant. Um, but no, I also, I stayed in Williamsburg once, um, one time I went back and that was very strange because I lived in Williamsburg in 2005, 2006. Uh-huh. And even then people were like, Williamsburg has changed. Right. Um, but now it's like really changed. Like yeah. I stayed in like a kind of night, like a fancy ish hotel in Williamsburg uh-huh. and there's so many fancy buildings and it was just really weird <laughs> well, how, okay so when you're writing something like that like yes. how do you balance the reportage with making it about something larger you know yeah so I mean I think that is one of the things that I struggled with in writing the book as yeah. someone who's been a journalist for sure. a long time um, like it's not just reportage it's not just mm-hmm. color as we totally. say yeah um and there were times when I sort of had to catch myself like overly from overly describing things mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm glad that you liked a lot of the details, but I, I think I had, a lover to, of I had to kind of like yeah. rein it in a little bit mm-hmm. and be like, OK, I'm actually telling a story. I'm not just like describing a scene. Um, so that was like that was a tough balance for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there was someone very wise I don't know remember who it was but who you know that that writing truism that all description is character oh I like that <laughs> I'll use that <laughs> but I, I think you achieve that in a lot Thank of ways you. you know the 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 things that you choose to describe the kind of the the way that you unfold them to us mm-hmm. is is definitely you know the uh the narrator's eye is is a a character in a way. Did you have kind of a big question that you went into the book with? So, I mean, one thing that I was very interested in exploring Mm -hmm. um, was this question of gender dynamics, Mm -hmm. both in tech and startups and just sort of like the way we live now. I mean, um, and, you know, trying to explore those questions both in the domestic and professional spheres. So when I was writing the book, I started writing the book in January of 2015, so Mm. about two and a half years ago, and there were two very high-profile sexual harassment cases in tech that happened around that time. One was... um, Whitney Wolf, who was one of the co-founders of Tinder, sued mm-hmm. for sexual harassment because she had been dating another co-founder and it went very badly and like their texts were published on Jezebel and it was just like a whole big mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had settled the lawsuit a couple months before I started okay. the book. And uh-huh. then she went off and founded Bumble, right. a Tinder competitor. Uh-huh. Um, and then the second one was the Ellen Powell Kleiner Perkins trial, which mm-hmm. started in February of 2015, but there was, like, mm-hmm. a lot of build-up to it. Right. Um, and, you know, she had an affair with a coworker. Mm-hmm. It went badly. Surprise. Um, she was basically pushed out. Right. And there was a lot of other... Like, she had a lot of other examples of a, basically, like, a hostile work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that, like, her, that seemed like an open-and-shut case to me. Right. Like, I was, the like... The Kleiner Perkins case. Yes. Like, yeah, this yeah. is clearly sexual yeah. harassment. She was clearly mm-hmm. pushed out of this company mm-hmm. because she had this affair and mm-hmm. they sided with the guy she had the affair with, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then she lost. And I was like, 
I, I could not believe it. Yeah. I was totally thrown by this. Yeah. Um, and it really made me start thinking about kind of the ways in which our society has changed and has mm-hmm. not changed, especially when it comes to gender dynamics mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big, I guess, a big theme and question that I yeah. was thinking about going into the book. Was that th- something that you had been writing about before from a, from a journalistic standpoint? So, uh, yes-ish. But not a ton. At the time I started Uh. writing the book, I wasn't really writing that much um, at my job. I was managing and editing. Mm -hmm. And I think that was partly even why I started writing the book. Because I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, I miss writing. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like I need my own project that's just separate from work. And so I worked on it in the mornings. I I decided I was going to write every day for a month in the mornings, like very artist way. Um, That's the way to do it. um, Uh. And I did. And Mm -hmm. then... I at the end of the month I had like 60 pages um, and uh. was like oh okay well this is a thing um, and uh, showed it to my friend Kate who's sitting right there um, and my agent mm-hmm. and they were both like oh yeah this, oh, I like this like you should it's a keep thing. yeah it's a thing you should keep thing. going uh-huh. um, and I was like oh okay yeah. <laughs> um, so I just kind of kept going but yeah, those were those were kind of the uh, animating questions I would say that were pushing me to write it. I'm just gonna read Camille Perry's um, <laughs> her uh, blurb here. She wrote. She's the uh, the author of The Assistance, which is so good. You should all read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says. This funny, empowering debut is chock full of strong women transcending the workplace drama, sexual politics, and all-around dumb stuff the men in their lives, in their life, are doing. It's a novel that just might spark the official feministing of startup culture. If I were a tech bro, I'd be shaking in my hoodie. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a good blurb. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was so good. And do you, I mean, was there any sense, like, when you were writing it, was there any desire to right wrongs? As in oh, correct huh. wrongs, not... Right, right. right um, yeah. Um, I mean, no. It's okay. I don't think, I mean... Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of asking a lot of a novel yeah. <laughs> to, to right wrongs, but yeah. um, I, I, I guess emotionally, I, yeah. I mean, I think I wanted to uh, shed light mm-hmm. on some things that I see as perhaps wrong. Uh-huh. So, do you <laughs> think there is something about tech that it attracts the kind of person who? You know, we've seen it happen at Uber recently. We've seen, um, you know, other reports from, especially from uh, women who are working as as engineers, particularly. Uh, Do you think there is something about these cultures that... Um, I mean, the short answer is yes. (laughs) And so what is it? Um, Well... Is it that... I think part of it is Mm -hmm. that there is this attitude of like, we are out here changing the world and we Mm -hmm. know best. Yeah. Um, and we don't need to obey the rules of like the old ways because we are breaking shit. Um, and when you have that attitude, like a lot of other things kind of fall by the wayside and Mm -hmm. you sort of, I think you kind of see everything as being in the service of 
breaking shit and right. you know changing the world and you you know i think anyone who starts a company whether it's a tech company or another kind of company like in order to succeed you have to have some degree of narcissism right because you have to like believe in your mm-hmm. idea or your project so much that you mm-hmm. will kind of do anything for it mm-hmm. but i think that tech culture often exacerbates people's narcissistic tendencies and rewards and it. rewards it yeah, yeah yeah so you know you see this behavior that mm-hmm. Perhaps in another industry, you know, this person would be blacklisted Mm. and in tech, they're like, here is a hundred million dollars. So when that's the (laughs) message, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, I guess this is how I'm supposed to behave. Yeah. Um, And then another thing is, you know, and this comes up in my book, Mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of startups, HR is like this afterthought. Right. And they just don't hire the HR person. They don't hire the HR person. uh Um, you know, they're growing really fast and it's just not a priority. And like, Mm -hmm. I get that, but like there comes a point, like, yes, you don't need an HR person when you're 10 people. It just doesn't make sense. But there comes a point when you need that person. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of startups hire that person or people too late. Now that being said, it's not like HR is this like sudden cure all, like you get HR and it's like, okay, everything's great. Because equality for all. Right. Like as we saw with Uber, I mean, that, Susan Fowler, the engineer who wrote that blog post, like she talked very extensively about how she had brought these issues to HR and they were Mm -hmm. like, well, your manager is a high performer. So I know that that was so heartbreaking. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think HR in and of itself is not like a solution, but good HR is. If you have one takeaway from this evening, guys, (laughs) good HR. So, People always want fiction to be real. And I I feel like... you know, I, that's the question that I've gotten the most at, at at events and things. I'm sure you've heard it several times already. When I used to, uh, I used to work at Goodreads, and I used to do this thing where I ran like author questions. So I would get, I would read through literally hundreds and hundreds of questions. Honestly, eighty percent of the questions were is this book real? Is this based on anyone real? Like, what's real? And I have to admit, I feel that way. Like, as much as I kind of want to, like, roll my eyes at that or, or laugh right. at it or whatever, I, you, when I read some, like, when I hear that a book is based on a real event, I also feel like, oh, or, or that it's based on a real person. Right. Or even know? if it's not, like, I know, like, when I read your book, I was like, well, you know, Jade grew up in LA and she, you know, like, yeah. I was like trying to find the, you right, know, the, right. the commonalities like kind of, when in fact, like your book is a novel, not it's real fiction. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, I think I get that a lot. Like I have gotten that a lot. Um, mm. I got it from when I told my boss I was writing a novel, yeah. he was like, oh, like, is it a Romana clip? <laughs> and I was like, no, no. And I was very much like, oh my God, no. It's like, not about you. It's not about you. It's not about BuzzFeed. Like it's mm-hmm. really not. It's all fiction. And then, and he seemed like kind of disappointed. No, <laughs> I agree. I think that people secretly want yes, you to be writing like, about that. Oh, them. you actually wanted to be in this yes. book. Like, yeah. So that was kind of a funny eye opener. Um, but no, I mean, mm-hmm. in actuality, like all of these characters are completely made up. Um, which, yeah, uh-huh. sorry. <laughs> um, which is not to say that, like I said, like that there aren't 
aspects of my own life and things that I report on that didn't like make their way into the book in some way. Right. But there's no like one to one. This is this person. This is this actual person. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk a little bit about character creation. Okay. I especially um, the three women who are kind of at the center of the book: um, Sabrina, Isabel, and Katya. Yeah. They, there's a really interesting kind of like. Um, class and envy thing that you get into. Uh, do you want to just talk a little bit about that and, sure. and what led you to really want that to be part of the story? Yeah, so Katya, um, you know, she's the daughter of Russian immigrants. Oh, there's a really cute dog here. So Katya's the daughter of Russian um, immigrants. She grew up like very working class in mm-hmm. Brooklyn and went to NYU on scholarship, lived at home, like kind of as a chip on her shoulder about Mm-hmm. this um isabel is very privileged like comes from connecticut went to you know liberal arts college like she's kind of a quintessential like r- like very very beautiful rich girl who like how does she live in that doorman how building? does she live in that doorman thing. building yeah. like how does she have such nice clothes mm-hmm. um how like has she ever had to struggle for anything no um sabrina who's married to dan she you know she is like for for new york she's middle class like Mm -hmm. she lives they own their apartment but it's a really small apartment in park slope and her kids you know she sends her kids to public school but it's not like the good public school and that really stresses her out um but, you know, with all of them, like, even mm-hmm. Katya, what I did want to show is that, like, they're all privileged in their own ways, and right. they're all kind of blind to it. Like, they right. all kind of envy the people who have more than them mm-hmm. without acknowledging what they have. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that felt to me like something that is very New York. Like, yeah, um, it just... You're just, I think because you're just in such close proximity yeah. to people all the time, right. and you just right. see stuff all the time that you're like, yeah. oh, like you know, whatever, you know, you're just always kind of comparing yourself. And Mm -hmm. I found that to be like very toxic, Mm -hmm. um, and very, um, I don't know. It's, it, it's like not productive in my opinion. Um, but it's very prevalent. But how did you find it to be, to, to actually write about, like was documenting it kind of, um, did it feel, like a way to release it or did you feel like you were kind of entering into the anxiety of it all over again oh no I mean it was kind of fun to write about um because you know like it's fun to write about people's anxieties it's true <laughs> our, our worst selves are very yeah. delicious yes <laughs> that's the problem um well I, I there's another part in the book that I would love you to read it's about a pole dancing class is that a giveaway? Well, you'll see. I mean, yeah, well, you'll see it in, in a second. Um, so, yeah, so as I had said, Sabrina's mm-hmm. 36, and she very much feels alienated from most of her coworkers. She also has to leave the office, at, like, on the dot of five to get home to relieve the nanny, which, you know, her coworkers do not have to do because none of them have kids. Okay, here we go. Sabrina had seen the subject line of the email pop up on her phone when she emerged from the subway, but she couldn't bring herself to open it until she was safely sitting down at her desk, because what it said was pole dancing workshop tomorrow at 7 p.m. 
It was from Mackenzie Alvarez in sales. The rest of the email said, hey everyone, just a reminder that we're having a pole dancing workshop tomorrow at 7 p.m. down the street at Pole Position NYC. <laughs> all are welcome, but especially Oliver Brandt, winky emoticon. Wear comfortable but fitted clothes, leggings are recommended. Underneath the text was a gif of a woman repeatedly spinning on a pole. Sabrina stared at it for a moment, watching the woman's body twist around and around, and then noticed that there were already 17 replies to Mackenzie's email, which had just gone out five minutes ago. From Chelsea in product, best day ever. From Jenny in marketing, a gif of Kristen Wiig on Saturday Night Live saying I'm so excited. From Oliver Brandt, in your dreams, Alvarez. Serena sighed. If there was anything that perfectly encapsulated the daily sense of alienation that she felt from her colleagues, it was this email and the responses. People didn't used to take pole dancing classes with their coworkers. They maybe got drunk with their coworkers, and that was the extent of it. But now you were expected to engage in forced, organized fun with people you worked with. And it seemed to her that the definition of fun had been majorly stretched. When she was in her 20s, people were way too jaded to think that something like a pole dancing class with colleagues was even remotely cool. She also felt like there was something slightly more insidious going on about how you were, supposed to, how you were now supposed to feel like your work was your everything. Where you got your paycheck, yes, but also where you got fed and where you found your social circle. Everything had started bleeding into everything else. These kids, she felt no compunction about calling them kids, expected that their workplaces would provide all of this for them, as if work were an extension of college with its own clubs and student organizations. Even more disconcerting was that many takeoff employees lived together or had roommates who were in some way connected to other takeoff employees, and now there were even apartment buildings that were actual dorms for grown-ups, where you lived in a suite with a few other people and had common areas and nightly activities. It was almost like a return to the days of Henry Ford when a company provided you with housing and meals and social events. What had happened to having to figure out life on your own? God, she was starting to sound like Dan, her husband. She read the email again. Really, what was wrong with a little pole dancing if that was what made people happy? <laughs> Just because she didn't want to participate didn't mean that other people couldn't. But people noticed when you didn't sign up for their pole dancing classes and softball leagues and weekend dumpling crawls. And it made them think again about how you were old. <laughs> to most of them, 36 might as well have been 86 in terms of how abstract it felt. They lumped her in with the rest of the people who don't matter population. The funny thing was, they thought they wanted to get married and have kids, but that was all far off in some nebulous future, and in the few conversations she'd ever had with any of them about it, they were almost adorably vague about how all of that was going to happen. <laughs> Most of them also had this notion that they needed to get everything out of their systems by the time they were 30, which was some kind of arbitrary witching hour, after which life suddenly got serious. Once she'd overheard Chelsea lamenting, almost to the point of tears, the fact that she was about to turn 28, which meant that she was only two years away from 30, and that was when she was going to have to start figuring everything out. Did she want to get married? Have kids? What about her career? Should she stay in New York or move back to Chicago? How would she ever save money? And she just wasn't ready for that life. But then, as soon as she noticed Sabrina walking by, she fell silent. Maybe there was a part of Sabrina that was jealous of this version of their 20s that they were all getting to experience. Her 20s had been filled with such pathos. New York was different then, too. She didn't want to say grittier, exactly. Maybe less sanitized was a better way to put it. And it felt more mysterious. Your life wasn't documented on Instagram for the world to see. I love that section because... 
I felt both sides of that equation sort of so acutely. Um, I mean, I'm much too old to feel like the young coworkers, yet uh-huh. I still kind of, <laughs> you know. And um, and then also just the fact that she's this old thirty six year old man, I'm just yep. <laughs> freaking along. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it's also. You know, that whole kind of work will provide everything. Like, work will be your everything. Is that... I I feel like that is... You almost... You write about that so gleefully. Um... (laughs) You know, I think it's... it's, uh, it's, It's a real aspect of our modern existence. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... Like, I do think that this is what especially tech companies that hire a lot of people in their 20s. I think this is what has come to be expected. Yeah, I, um, about 10 years ago, I think, I wrote an article about Google, when Google built the their Mountain View complex, and they, I just remember sort of walking around the complex and being like, you have laundry yeah. and a wave pool and yeah. masseuses and endless, just endless coconuts to drink from. <laughs> it was literally you. Like, Why did you leave? I mean, <laughs> I mean maybe I'll go move back yeah. in. Um, but but yeah, it, it just it again seems like this world that's like so ripe for satire, and yet it is the thing itself. Yeah, and you know, I didn't. I was, I was really careful, and I hope this mm-hmm. came across in the book, but, like, I didn't want it to seem condescending or right. patronizing mm-hmm. um, towards, like, people in their 20s right. or, like, people who work at startups. Like, that yeah. was not my intention at all. It was really more to show how these worlds work mm-hmm. and why people mm-hmm. want to exist in these worlds. But um, there's yeah. not intended to be a a real judgment on it. No, I think you actually show a lot of empathy for your characters. Is that was that a thing you sort of went in deliberately trying to do or was it Yeah, just I your mean, natural your empathetic yeah, my natural empathy. Um no, I mean, especially with Mac mm-hmm. because he was the toughest character for me to access because he's a 28-year-old tech bro essentially right. and you know it would have been really easy, I think, to just turn him into this kind of ridiculous caricature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there were certainly drafts of the book where yeah. he was a little bit more cliche and stereotypical, mm-hmm. but I was, I really wanted him to feel like I wanted you to kind of like root for him against your will yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so I talked to a bunch of company founders, like I did uh, some reporting um, okay. and talked to a bunch of company founders, like mm-hmm. off the record mm-hmm. and um, just tried to like get inside their heads and understand what their worldview was and figure out like what made Mac tick really. Did those interviews change your opinion of them? Like, or make you see them in a, in a whole different light? Well, look, I don't know what they are like on a day-to-day with their employees. Sure. To me, they were, like, very nice and mm-hmm. very earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, like, all the reporting... Yeah, nice. all the reporting I've done on yeah. tech, like, the founders are always very earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mac is earnest. Sorry. You know? Yeah. Um, but, no, I mean, they... They just provided like insight that I wouldn't have necessarily been able to get. Mm-hmm. Just like there's a scene where one of Max 
kind of prized employees quits. This is one of my favorite scenes. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> Tell everyone what happens while he's quitting. Yeah, so he's wearing a unicorn onesie while he's quitting, <laughs> and Mac is like, wait, why are you wearing a onesie? And he's like, oh, it's onesie day. Yeah. And Mac's like, oh, God. Like, then Mac feels old. Right. And he's, you know, 28. Um, anyway, yes, but that scene... Um, a lot of the dialogue changed after I had these conversations because they were really able to show me, like, why do people quit? How do mm-hmm. you react when people quit? And mm-hmm. one of the things that someone said to me that I never would have, like, figured out on my own was that um, a lot of times people, especially, like, engineers and product people, quit because they think, like, the problems aren't challenging enough. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not about money. It's not about... Or if a company has lost its startup if, ethos. I feel like that's yeah, the other, like, big right. So quitting. it's these sort of, like, yeah. intangible mm-hmm. things um, that I never would have known if I hadn't had these conversations, so... Um, I have a million more questions for you, but on unicorn onesies, I feel like we should <laughs> we should open up uh, open up the questions to the audience. If anyone if anyone has something that they're dying to know about Dory, <laughs> yes. I especially like the part where um, I forget. I think it was Sabrina saying something about how she misses the cynical lawyers and bankers. Mm-hmm. At least they knew that the only thing they were going after was more profits. Where I think you know these tech people hide behind the auspice of if they're going to change the world. Yeah. And I think that that especially hit a high knife with me because uh, it, it you know the book was released on the 25th. You know a couple weeks earlier was Mark Zuckerberg's manifesto to the world, and there was a TechCrunch article that exactly said what Mark's the headline was what Mark Zuckerberg's letter did not say, and, and it was and it had nothing to do with ethos or about profit. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that is definitely something that I've seen. Um, you know, I think bankers, Wall Street people, like, do get a lot of shit rightfully for just being kind of like profit-hungry vultures. Um, but there is something sort of, to me, there's just something, like, refreshing about that. Like, they're not hypocrites. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, they're just like, we just want to make money. Um Whereas I think a lot of these tech people, they actually also just really want to make money, but they're kind of disingenuously hiding behind this, like, we're going to make the world a better place kind of thing. So I'm glad you picked up on that. (laughs) Yeah. So you were pretty straightforward about the fact that you're working in BuzzFeed and everything didn't translate one-to-one to the novel. But I'm wondering, how does having written the novel influence the kind of stories you want to cover now and how you look at the tech world going forward? Um, I mean, I think it's actually had a pretty significant impact on me. I'm changing jobs at BuzzFeed. Like, I'm going... I took these two weeks off to do my book stuff, and then when I go back to work, I'm going to be writing about tech. So... Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So... Yeah, I just, I feel like there's, like, a lot of really interesting questions um, and characters, and so, yeah, it definitely had an impact on me. Oh, sorry. Yeah? Um, What do you think the culture of tech today, especially in New York, is building for people, right? So you're talking a lot about, like, why people are using work as their whole life. What's the gap that that's 
I think that New York can be a very alienating place and a very overwhelming place, and you kind of have to find your tribe in New York, and I think that a workplace like Takeoff kind of is an instant tribe, like you know where you stand. Um, so I suspect that that is part of it. Um, yeah, I think I think that that is like a big part of it. You had. Um, so I'm just really curious that you're dealing with technologies that are presenting an ever-present now, where historical context gets lost, as we've seen, and. Um, and yet there's such a focus on age. So I'm wondering within all these metrics how that all filters out is, I'm just, I was trying to guess myself, is there's just like this ever springing now that people feel pressured to, you know, I, I'm just trying to get filter. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, yeah, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen um, to all these people working at startups as they like grow up. Um, like will the startups change with them? Or will they feel like they've kind of aged out of them? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really have an answer to that, but I think it's something that, like, I will be watching. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Hi. Uh, love the book. Like, I feel like everyone's social media is like, you'll read it in a day. You'll read it in <laughs> seven, seven days. I could have put it down. Um, I have a question about the ending. So I feel like... We definitely got some answers, but there's some things that like left the reader curious. Mm -hmm. So um, was that intentional? And if you wanted a sequel, um, you know, were you hoping to turn it into a TV pilot? I'm just kind of curious about <laughs> how you decided on the ending because you definitely left me very curious about certain things, and I'm sure other readers as well. So the ending. Um, well. I mean, one thing I will say is, like, I love... So the ending of the book is kind of ambiguous for those of you who have not read it. Um, and I personally love an ambiguous ending. Like, I think it's just... I think, I, like, that's that's how life is, you know? Um, and I think there's always a temptation to sort of, like, wrap things up and be like, okay, movie's over, um, and, you know, have that per kind of perfect ending. And... I thought it was like I thought it was a little more interesting to just leave it a little open ended. Now that being said, um, I did write a draft of the book that had an epilogue, oh. where it was like, "Here's what happens," um, and my editor was like, "I don't think you need like I don't think you need this epilogue. I think it's better to just leave it." Um, and you know, if you've read the book carefully, I think it's pretty clear what happens, um, but. You know. <laughs> Bonus materials for uh, paperback pre-order? Yeah, maybe. maybe. That's a good yeah. idea. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Hi. 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 I'm curious, um, in writing the book and researching it, what, how did your relationship with tech um, and social media change? Did you have to get more into it, or did you have to step back so that you um, I, I feel like I sort of had to observe it with a different eye a little bit. Also, it was it was kind of constantly changing. Like, early, in an early draft, or actually not even that early, like I had already turned it in, and I think we had gone through a round of revisions. There's a whole bit about Vine, and then Vine died. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, 
<laughs> so I changed that reference to Snapchat, um, but which will never die, but also like <laughs> is I don't know whatever. But then I kind of got to the point where I was like I could I could do this forever like tweaking each little potential anachronism and that and at some point you just have to be like okay this book takes place when it takes place um I know this that's not really answering your question but it made me think of that um yeah I didn't like I think I went I went off I, I took two months off work I, t- I went on book leave and I think I went off twitter for those two months like I stayed on Instagram I felt like Instagram was a safe space um but I went off Twitter and I might have gone off Facebook I can't remember but Twitter really felt I was just like I can't I can't deal so yeah one more question who is the most interesting Ashley question has a question <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, your feelings on the connection between the tech world and spirituality to just kind of you know, just you you guys were talking about it a little bit earlier and obviously it's a big part of your book with Mac having, you know, this this type of an app. Mm-hmm. Did everyone hear that? Do you wanna repeat it? Um she was asking about the relationship between tech and spirituality. I think of it less about I, I think of it less in terms of spirituality and more in terms of wellness. Um mm. like that feels very techy to me um this obsession with quantifying all of your you know how many steps? how many steps you take how much sleep you get a night how much water you drink a day how much you're meditating like everything is kind of quantified in the service of being healthy but like you could also argue like how healthy is it to obsess over all of this stuff like probably not very healthy um but i think that tech in you know encourage there's this whole movement of the quantified self and i think tech like encourages that and feeds into it and again it's like another it's like another side of narcissism right so it's all connected and on that note (laughs) um thank you so much for coming and buy her book you've been listening to the skylight books author reading series don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon